If you're looking outside a window right now, you have to look very carefully. You have to look at something that has a dark background to it, but you can see this very fine stuff falling from the sky. I don't know what it is. Uh, if somebody finds out what that is, could you please email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. I don't know. It's it's kind of white. It's very fine. Then, oh, man. It's it's snow, I know, and it's it's here. And the one thing that that reminds us is that it is November, and it's not bad that we're getting snow in November because, you know, we get off easily. In Alberta, they've had snow since, what, end of August? When did that first snowfall come? It was a long time ago, and they've been dealing with that for a while. But we're also at November the 6th, and that brings us much closer to November the 11th and Remembrance Day, which will arrive on Monday. There will be ceremonies at the Cenotaph, but it gives us an opportunity this time of year, and, and I wish we could do this every day, but it gives us an opportunity to really look back in time and look back at the impact that our military had, look back at what it is that we can appreciate today because of what our military did for us. And there are certain individuals who we owe a lot of thanks to for what they did. There are other individuals who are helping to tell their story long after it took place. And we're lucky enough to have one of those individuals with us in studio for the better part of the next hour to talk about a book called Rush to Danger. Ted Barris is with us. Ted, thanks for being here. Mike, a pleasant time in spite of the snow. Well, I'm not going to accuse you of bringing the snow. Don't worry. <laughs> I will not do that because I, I, you know, long ago learned how weather worked, and I know it's not brought in by individuals. Historians. Exactly. Well, the fact that you are able to tell such great stories is something that we owe a debt of gratitude to you for because you're telling stories that in a few years, and you could even argue now, are not being told anymore. We have other authors, we have journalists, we have the Dominion Project. They're doing their best to make sure that we keep alive what took place a long time ago. In Rush to Danger, you wind up looking at, at a, a, a number of aspects, but at at the medical side of things, can you tell us before we go away to news and we'll come back and, and tell some stories from Rush to Danger, but can you tell us where really the, the impetus for this particular set of stories came from? It came from my dad. Uh, my dad is uh, a name that a number of people of a certain age will remember. Alex Barris was a broadcaster, a writer, a television host, a journalist, columnist and so on, uh, born in 1922 in New York City. Uh, my dad, and uh, he served in the American military during the Second World War as a medic. And my dad was fairly giving to me of some of his stories. We, You and I have often said on this program in previous visits, veterans never talk about it. He did with me because he understood that I was eager to know, and so we shared certain stories and aspects of his medic's experience. He was in the bloodiest battle the Americans encountered during the Second World War, the Battle of the Bulge which was when the Germans, after the invasion had happened in 44, and the uh, allies, the Canadians, the British, the Americans, were pushing the Germans back into Germany. They broke out in December of 1944-45, and then the allies pushed them back. My dad was a medic with uh, a unit under George Patton, and Patton wanted results, and Patton was an SOB. And if you didn't respond, you were a malingerer, a, a slacker. And, and my dad's division was accused of that, and yet they managed by brute force to push the Germans back into Germany and then push them to, to defeat in that coldest winter of the war. 
And even though my dad had been trained as a medic in the States, he, he had no medical background whatsoever. Um, they just moved him that way because they needed medics. And I think my dad was sort of not a conscientious objector, but he didn't particularly want to be a, a bearing arms. So they said, medic, that's where you're going. And, and so off he went. But he really learned how to be a medic on the job in that coldest winter of the war, 1945, attending to, uh, in their sector of the war, 90,000 casualties in the Battle of the Bulge. So he learned very quickly what to do. We are very lucky to have with us Ted Barris, who is going to be at the London Public Library tonight. So if you hear some things from Ted now and you think, man, I I wish Ted could go on longer, because that's typically what happens when we have Ted in studio. (laughs) He is going to be able to go on longer. You just have to wait a couple of hours. Ted is going to be at the London Public Library tonight at 7 o'clock at the Stevenson Hunt Room, and he'll be sharing more stories and one of the things, if, if you missed it just before news, one of the things that we're going to be talking about is Ted's book, Rush to Danger, which focuses in on a lot of what happened in not just the Second World War, but a number of conflicts from the perspective of the medic. Ted, you mentioned your dad was a medic in the Second World War and that unlike a lot of people in the Second World War, He told stories about this. How old would you have been when he decided, now's the time when I can talk to my son about this? He didn't decide. I decided. You decided. I challenged him. I was laid up at home just at the beginning of the summer holidays in 1963 when I was 14. That's 56 years ago. And... Uh, he was kind of humoring me because I was feeling sorry for myself. I'd been in an accident, so I had to wait till I recuperated. And so I popped the question. I said, Dad, what would you do in the war? And he began, Just like that? Just like that. And, and he began to, as many veterans do, if they decide to say anything, they, he told me the funny stuff. He told me how um, uh, after breakfast when he was in training, they would give him two sandwiches, one peanut butter, one uh, bologna. And he would look from breakfast until lunch for a guy who hated peanut butter as much as he hated bologna so he could have two peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> he talked about at the end of the war when they were in Czechoslovakia in occupation, sort of restoring infrastructure in Czechoslovakia. He wanted to get to Prague, which was in the Russian sector. They stole a Jeep to get to Prague. I mean, it was all the funny stuff he told me. And then I asked him, did you get any acknowledgement? And he gave me a, a ribbon with a gong on it, a medal. I didn't know what it was, and that was the end of it. Dad and I went on to share careers in broadcasting and journalism. We both taught. We both freelanced. We golfed badly together. We were best friends. So he shared with me a little bit more. We did one book on the Second World War called Days of Victory about 25 years ago. So he gave me hints. But then when he died in 2004 – I recognized there was more to do, and I went to the States because his was an American regiment, and I found out more that I had no idea. He was in this Battle of the Bulge, which was when the Germans pushed out of Germany, fighting back against the invasion, attempting to drive the Allies into the sea and recapture Antwerp and Belgium. Um, In that attempt, uh, Patton's army pushed back. That's where Dad was. And you know, Mike, when I think about him doing some of the things I learned uh, that they did, I just can't believe it. He was a guy from New York. The first thing he had to deal with among the men in his unit was frostbite because it was the coldest winter. This is a guy who grew up in New York. He didn't know what frostbite was. All he knew was first aid that they trained him in anatomy. Essentially. So basically before they sent him over to be a medic, they gave you a little first aid, a little anatomy and said, you're in. That's right. And, and well, that was because that's what they figured was the basics. Dad knew as well as anybody he would learn if he learned at all on the job. And in the middle of February, 
Uh, he's now a tech sergeant, which means he's responsible for sending stretcher bearers, medics, corpsmen into the battlefield to retrieve wounded. And in uh, just across the border in Germany, at a place called Kampoltz Woods, he sends four medics into the battlefield area. He's a runner going back and forth between where they are and the first first aid station behind the lines. And, and a buddy of his, a man I found in New Jersey who served with him, ran the motor pool, the ambulances, and they liaised at that first aid station. And this guy told me stuff about my dad I didn't know. We all know my dad, Alex Barris, as a writer. He was a frustrated writer during the war. He actually built to get a, a, a newsletter for the medical battalion. So he was running around getting stories and printing them in this newsletter. And he While called, he's doing everything else? Yes, because he loved writing. I didn't know this. The newsletter was called, get this, The Weekly Dose. Oh, my. That's good. That's <laughs> good. In February, he sends these four guys into this battlefield area. And this is at a time, Mike, when they're dealing – and this is where I, the research from a university in the States I found. At this point in the Battle of the Bulge, they're dealing with in a 12-hour period as many as 120 wounded men. That's one wounded man every six minutes. I can't think of a medical facility in this country that could handle the kinds of wounds with the frequency of that. You're not ever. coming in with the flu. No, no. And that, that's what dad dealt with. And then at the end of this 12-hour period, suddenly it's nighttime. These four guys haven't returned. He's in charge of them. He's got to find them. He has to walk through the snow in the night looking for footprints that haven't exploded from mines and other booby traps and tank ditches and so on to find these. He finds them that night and one by one he brings them out and saves them. And somebody realizes this, spots this, and he was awarded that medal that he gave me when I was 14. It was called the Bronze Star, which if you know your American medals, and I didn't at the time, is the third or fourth highest medal for courage and meritorious service they ever handed out. And I didn't know this. Well, so when he handed it to you, he didn't say, this is the story behind how no. I got this. I think he sensed that if I cared enough, I'd find out. It's only taken me 56 years, but <laughs> I did it. What was it like to find that out? Boy, I was really overwhelmed um, because I know my dad, unlike so many thousands of other veterans, did not visibly suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. He didn't drink abusively. He didn't hit anybody. He argued politics, politics all the time. We did it at supper time because that was the nature of our family. He never raised a hand to my mother, to me. Um, it was fair, um, not moody, didn't withdraw. He was a personality. He was a writer. He engaged people. So maybe that was his um, response to whatever might have been his demons was to engage people and to write, which he did all his life. He, he wrote until his dying day. So that was the impetus to go out and find other stories. And so I've gone to the records to find out who invented the field ambulance in the U.S. Civil War in uh, Fredericksburg in 1862, the very first field ambulance. Right through the Boer War, the Great War, the Korean War, the Second World War, Afghanistan and Iraq, I talked to flight surgeons, these young men and women who work in the back of Black Hawk helicopters. They're harnessed in. So they don't fall out. And they've got a patient who's on a carousel also harnessed in after a, what might be a mortal wound. And they're treating them with IV and intubation and suction and so on while this chopper's flying at 140 miles an hour to get these guys to a hospital, a mass unit in Iraq. So the contrast is such an incredible one recognizing how far military medicine has come but really driven by the personalities of people who for some reason – while everyone was running away, rushed to danger.
Ted Barris joining us, author of Rush to Danger. Ted's going to be at the London Public Library tonight sharing more stories at 7 o'clock at the Stevenson Hunt Room. When you talk to these people, because, you know, you can do research, like you say, on on the Boer War and going back to other conflicts, but you got to speak with people who who will do this about doing this. Mm -hmm. Are they, ah, shucks? about it do they realize how integral they are to what's going on or is it just yeah i do that that's a really good question um a lot of them were kind of aw shucks because they're modest especially canadians canadians are not flag wavers and they, they don't rave about themselves i remember meeting a guy named james Britton, who was a medic uh, after d-day in the battle for normandy and uh, he'd actually fallen into it accidentally his when they joined in the uh the Welland Regiment uh, in 1940, uh, his brother had accidentally signed up to become a medic and didn't want it. And so James stepped up and took his position to get into the regiment. They're in Normandy and they had trained with a number of, of other uh, wings of their of their regiment. And um, suddenly James, in the middle of this ferocious battle, turns to a, a corpsman or a, a, a soldier and sees him leaning against a building. And he thinks he's got his leg down, one leg down in a, in a um, sort of a sh- small ditch, what they referred to as, as slit trenches for safety. And he looked more closely and he realized the man had lost the leg below the knee. Immediately reacted, dashed to this guy. All of the – because of the shelling, most of his stretchers had been ripped to shreds. He manufactured um, a – a way of getting this guy transported, attended his wounds, applied a tourniquet and saved his life. And then when they returned years later and this friend of his, I can't remember his name, he, he was uh, – uh, they both returned safely. This other guy uh, has a family, um, full life in spite of the lost leg and James was invited to their 60th wedding anniversary and was the guest of honor because of his saving this man all those years ago. And with modesty, he said, James said, anybody would have done it, same as I did. So it's exactly as you said, aw shucks. So that's one instance of what motivates them. I think to um, a lot of these people, I think of um, a a nurse uh, or an ambulance driver whose story I got, a woman from Vancouver, uh, Grace McPherson. She was the first woman in Vancouver to own a driver's license and a car in 1912 or 13. So she had a sense of how to drive these things. And when the war came along in 1914, she offered her services to the Red Cross, the Canadian Red Cross, the British Red Cross. They said, no, we're fine. We don't need anybody. She saved up enough money during the First World War to get herself to England. She's handing out pay chits at the Canadian barracks in London, waiting for an opportunity to meet none other than Sir... Sam Hughes, who was the Minister of Militia and War, to plead her case to become an ambulance driver. She actually went to the top. She could have easily said, no, okay, I guess they they don't want me, and gone home and lived a safe and happy life. Could have, yep. But she decided that wasn't what she was going to do. And so she gets this audience with with Hughes, pleads her case. He turns her down. Under no circumstances will I allow a woman to go to the front. But he certainly suddenly is turfed out because of an allegation that he was taking kickbacks for the purchase of Ross rifles for the by the Canadian Army, he was getting kickbacks from that from those purchases. He's out. New guy comes in. The men who had been driving the ambulances behind the front and behind the Western Front were removed so that they could serve the war effort closer to the front. The the driver's seats opened up. Grace got her wish. Her first night 
of operation behind the lines in France. Her first night was April the 9th, 1917, the first day of the Battle at Vimy Ridge. And she served there, driving the wounded to the hospitals behind the lines. She had her wish. And she said in her memoirs that she was proud to be able to save lives, proud to work for the Canadian forces, most proud she was to have a Canada patch on her shoulder. So why did they do this? For a million different reasons. Some patriotism, patriotism some sense of uh, saving humanity, some filling gaps like my dad. But they all did it so earnestly, so completely that they deserve a book like this. Well, you've put it together. Rush to Danger is what the book is called. Ted Barris with us in studio. Ted's going to be at the London Public Library tonight with more stories, with copies of the book. Absolutely. Okay, with copies of the book. 7 o'clock, Stevenson Hunt Room. And it really goes to show just what it takes to give us what we have today. And those that served not with a rifle in their hands, but still made the most in the way of of difference to certain lives that 60th anniversaries could be celebrated <laughs> later, 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 much later, probably over 60 years later. And they could be done because of some of the men and women who served in the medical side in the Second World War and other conflicts. Ted, again, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, and I wish we could. We are out of time here, but... You can join Ted tonight, 7 o'clock, London Public Library, Stevenson Hunt Room. Thank you for what you do in, in finding these stories. How hard is it to find these stories? Is it, is it easier than we would think? Is it a, a very difficult? The key, as you well know from all the interviews you do, is to listen. Yeah. If you listen and you're patient and you don't expect it to be as quick as picking up your phone like Susie here. Have you introduced Susie? I haven't yet, but okay. Susie, <laughs> Susie has been here. She's a student who is here today, job shadow finding out what it is like to be in broadcasting, believe it or not, from Beale. So go Raiders. Go Raiders. Yeah, but Susie, when you, look, when you, you don't go to the library to do research, do you? You, you, don't, you don't do that at all. You pick up your phone, right? But you've been <laughs> sitting here very patiently, and she hasn't once picked up her phone. No. So <laughs> I think that says a lot about the stories you're telling, and I think it says a lot about Susie, too. If you listen, you learn. Have you enjoyed learning today? Have I been able to teach you anything? I know Ted has. Yes. Okay. Bo- both of you have. Both of us? Okay. Yes. I, I was hoping to at least leave you with, with one thing, even if it's, I can't believe he does that for a living. <laughs> Ted, thank you so much for being Thanks, here. Mike. Thanks, Ted Barris, Rush to Danger again. One more time at the London Public Library tonight at 7 o'clock, Stevenson Hunt Room.